Well, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. It's amazing how fast the year goes by. And this morning I want to talk to you about thankfulness. It is that time of year in the spirit of thankfulness. I want to share a message with you from Psalm 111. Now to get us going, you know probably by, very well by now that we have some unusual ways of showing thankfulness here in America, don't we? Uh, there is the ways that are familiar enough to us. I mean, last Thursday was Thanksgiving. We gather together with family or with friends. Uh, we celebrate all we have to be thankful for. That's normal enough. A few odd traditions have arisen over the years. Last Monday, the president pardoned two turkeys. They will go on to live their lives without fear of becoming a dinner in November. But things have gotten even more odd. You may be familiar with Black Friday. For some, Thanksgiving means Black Friday, that annual retail wrestling match. That day is used by some to to line up, to be the first ones in the ring. I mean the retail department store. Others yet run a marathon. The turkey trot has become popular. A five or 10K run. Some even dress up like turkeys to run the race. Of course, these are these more normal traditions, the time spent with friends, Dallas Cowboys, Detroit Lions, Macy's Day Parade, things normal enough, no doubt. But at the same time, we must acknowledge that ultimately, thankfulness, it requires an object. Thankfulness requires an object. And I want to submit to you this morning that the Lord God is our object of thankfulness. Better said, he's the person due our worship. This psalm this morning is going to connect this concept of thanksgiving to the person of God. The author is going to connect gratitude to God. And even better than that, you and I aren't simply going to be told this morning to be grateful No, he's going to show us how to be thankful, and he's going to walk us through reasons to praise. This morning, we will celebrate three traditions to help us with our thanksgiving. As I mentioned, this comes from Psalm 111. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it up with me, and we will work our way verse by verse through this chapter. Here at Emmanuel, we tend to go verse by verse through portions of Scripture at a time, and we're currently in a series in the Psalms. This week, if you are interested, there is a way to follow up on this message, and it's by reading the next Psalm. Psalm 111 and 112, they really go together. Uh, Psalm 111 this morning is going to praise the person of God, and then Psalm 112 is going to describe how God's person responds to him. They work together quite nicely. If you have your Bibles, I'll give you a few examples. In Psalm 111, verse 3, you'll notice there, the author writes, His righteousness endures forever, speaking of God's righteousness. Well, if you look over at Psalm 112, verse 3, His righteousness endures forever. Now referring to the man who fears the Lord or the man who's responded to Psalm 111. In Psalm 111, verse 4, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. In Psalm 112, verse 4, the man who fears the Lord is 
gracious and compassionate. So these psalms, they work together to communicate a a point. Both these psalms, 111 and 112, are written in what's called an acrostic. That means that each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, in order, introduces a new line or a new half verse. And it's going to go in order. This is going to be like in English. In verse 1, if someone began that verse with the letter A, and then the second line of verse 1 is B, and then verse 2 is C, and so on through the entire psalm. Now, it's the Hebrew alphabet being used, not the English alphabet, so it's 22 letters, not 24. Verses 9 and 10 are going to have three letters. They're going to introduce each line. All the others have two letters. There's some different ideas on why an author would write this way. And isn't that kind of complicated? It is. In fact, I think it's quite remarkable that someone would be able to do this. Uh, Some see in this an outline or a structure for the psalm. That's why someone would use an acrostic to write. Some believe it's a helpful tool to memorize the Bible, especially in Hebrew. And obviously, this is communicating an artistic skill. Someone must be quite creative to be able to do this. And it even signifies a form of completeness or thoroughness. This kind of writing requires great skill. It requires some careful writing, and it requires deep thoughts about God. I want to begin with the first three verses this morning, in verses 1 through 3. Gathering will help our thankfulness. Gathering helps our thankfulness, and we're going to see this in two main ways. We're going to see it in these verses physically, how physically gathering helps us, but also figuratively, and I'll show that to you in a moment. Verse 1, the author writes, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Verse 1 is a physical call to worship to gather to worship. The psalmist says gathering helps our worship. And this is a call to gather all of ourselves with the people of God. We're to gather personally. I will give thanks, he writes. We might say that I don't know what others will do. It may be that we're in a trial. We don't know how that will end. But we do know that we love the Lord and we do know we want to worship him. I will gather to worship. This is a call to gather completely. Not only will we gather personally, but we gather completely. I will give thanks to the Lord with all of my heart, he writes. It is an unrestricted and unreserved giving of all of me to God. This is me giving not only my body present here, but my mind engaged as well. My thoughts are thoughts of God today. It may be this morning that this is an unrefined worship. Maybe we're not particularly good at it or necessarily eloquent in it. This may be an unremarkable type of worship. It may feel like just a normal Sunday. There aren't waves of emotions or great high feelings, yet we are here faithfully worshiping. We might say this is a giving of thanks with all of my mind and my heart and my strength. This is a call to gather also publicly. 
I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. You and I gather to praise God together. This psalm is going to contain the, the recurring theme of assembling to worship. All of the psalms do that. And the New Testament picks up on this. The word church, it means quite simply assembly. We're to gather ourselves with all of God's people. Now, to present a contrast, to try to illustrate this more clearly, the opposite would say, well, I, I, I may give thanks, depending on my schedule. I may give thanks to the Lord with some of my heart. I may give thanks to the Lord with some of my heart at home alone. I don't like some of those people in the assembly. Now, thankfulness, to be sure, can happen with a busy schedule. It can happen with a struggling heart. It can happen at home alone. But in the psalm, Psalm 111, thankfulness must happen personally and completely and publicly. So we begin here by gathering, gathering ourselves, all of ourselves together. Gathering helps our thankfulness. And verses 2 and 3 went to gather somewhat figuratively as well. Here we want to gather together God's perfections. We want to understand who this God is that we worship. And I think that as we reflect on His beauty, it will help us with our thankfulness. A key word in this psalm is the word work or the word works. You'll see it there in verses 2 and 3 and then 6 and 7. And the psalmist wants to point us to the works of the Lord, these things that God has done, especially in verses 4 through 9. We'll get into that in a moment. But they're going to teach us about the Lord God. We can know Him so we can thank Him. To, To thank Him more robustly, we need to know Him more deeply. The great works of God or the greatness of God's works, this is a frequent theme in the Bible. Some of our favorite Bible stories are simply descriptions of God's works. And the Bible does this not because it ran out of other things to talk about, not because one of the Jewish rabbis lost a scroll, no. The Bible does this because we need this. They, we, need reminded of God's works. What we want to do is take these great works then and we want to run them through our minds and reflect on them over and over. God's works, in fact, tell us what God is like. I think one of the most subtle sins that you and I might commit daily is a reframing of who God is in our minds. We don't set out to commit it. It happens more or less quite naturally. Maybe we're making a change to who God is over here, or maybe there's a subtle shift over there. Maybe I'm just fashioning that God a bit so he can fit my life. But we need to keep coming back again and again to a standard to a measuring rod, to a source of objective truth. We need the scriptures. We need to set our ideas and our theology and our thoughts about God underneath it. We need to know who God is. And one of the leading ways God teaches that is through his works. Now you just think about this for a moment. You know someone by their works. And when we hear someone's name, we immediately 
can think about the kind of person they are based on their works. I mean, you can try this out for a moment. What do you think about when you hear the name Mickey Mantle? How about Sherlock Holmes? How about Joe Biden? Easy. (laughs) We'll try this another way. How about Joseph of Arimathea? John the Baptist? Jesus of Nazareth? You see, those names represent a whole encyclopedia of works. And saying their name brings to mind who they are based on their works. And we know God this way. We know God by His works, His powerful works of God in Scripture. Notice that verse 2 reveals that they are studied by all who delight in them. The works of God aren't boring. Not to the psalmist. It's quite the opposite, he says. They, they spark further interest where one is interested in learning more about them. In preparing for the day, I kept coming across the story about a place called the Cavendish Laboratory. This is at Cambridge. It houses their Department of Physics. There I learned that the electron and the neutron were discovered. And over the main entrance of this laboratory at Cambridge is this verse. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. That's kind of surprising, isn't it? And in some ways, it's not surprising. Oh, it's surprising that this would be above a secular university laboratory, above their doors. Uh, It was even part of the 1973 rebuild that they built there. But at the same time, it's not surprising. Logically speaking, science is the last place we should find an atheist. People don't reject God because of lack of evidence. They reject God because they don't want him. You see, when we gather these works of God from his created order to his revealed word, it's going to produce within us, Lord willing, a heart of gratitude. Verse 3 gathers a a few more descriptions of God's work. It's going to work together with verse 4 here to gather together the big words about God. We're going to bump into these a bunch in this psalm. We see here that God's works are splendid. That word has to do with a weightiness, a heaviness. Last week, we learned about that word glory. It's used of God. It has that same kind of description. God's words are majestic or they are beautiful, writes the psalmist. And his righteousness endures, that his righteousness endures speaks to his just orderly arranging of things, of all things. It's these thoughts about God that we want to gather together as we contemplate him, as we seek to worship. Thankfulness is going to flow quite naturally from a heart that's taken up with God. That's our objective, is to be uh, enamored or enraptured, taken up with this person of God. So the question this morning then is, have you positioned yourself for worship today? Psalm 111 calls you and I to observe the works of the Lord Do you think about the Lord? Do you think about what he's done? Do you meditate on his works? Maybe from the scriptures, it may be observing your life and the world around you. But what this psalm wants to do is basically raise an arm and point with an index finger to point 
to see the works of the Lord, and not only to see them and observing them, but then also to respond to a God who is great and splendid and majestic. And as it does that, it says to you what? It says, praise the Lord. Look at his works. So do you see the works of the Lord today? Because if you don't, our psalm wants to put you on a headlock and make you look. No, it doesn't want to do that. Remember, this isn't that type of a psalm. What this psalmist wants to do is come alongside you and I and exhort us to praise the Lord, but then show us how to do that. And that's where we now turn next. Verses 4 through 9. Observing helps our thankfulness. In verses 4 through 9, observing helps our thankfulness. If, If gathering helps our thankfulness to get things going, whether it's in mind or physically here together, Observing helps our thankfulness as well. This is very similar to our psalm from last week. The author is going to give us reasons to thank God. And in today's psalm, he lists five works of God. Each of them is going to begin with a, a, two words, he has, and then he's going to follow that up with a reason to thank God. Some work that God performs. Verse 4, he has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Verse 4, the invitation there is to observe God's wonders. Observe God's wonders. By and far, the wonders of God in the Bible are his miraculous acts. These great deeds that God has done, mysterious, supernatural, unforgettable. And when God does these deeds, without a doubt, people remember. I think about Noah's neighbors, a giant boat, a colossal flood. Think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh remembers flies, gnats, flies, boils, blood, darkness, hail, frogs. Goliath remembers a small, smooth stone. But who's the audience in Psalm 111? Israel. The people of God, the people of God are called to remember. He made his wonders to be remembered by all of us, to be sure, but the psalmist is writing mainly for the nation of Israel. And we're going to see in a moment here that these wonders in this psalm, I, I think they pertain mostly to the Exodus event in those wilderness wanderings. We'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But the point here is that God has made his wonders to be remembered. And God has done this in a really interesting way. He's made them to be a memorial. That'd be another way we could say it in that verse. You've read these in the Bible. There's the feasts, the festivals, the offerings, the Sabbath. You see, what God has done is not only given them memorials, but he's given them in such a way that they could relive the experience. 
Has anyone here ever attended a Seder? One of those Easter, yeah, the Easter dinner where you're celebrating a a Passover-type meal. It's a traditional Passover meal where there's uh, verses read, there's traditions rehearsed, there's eating and there's drinking. It's a way to actually relive the, the Exodus experience. At one point in that meal, there, there's, there's a, a point where you viscerally remember the, the bitter life that they left behind in Egypt. And what God does in this is, is you eat, in most, most dinners, you eat actual horseradish. Have you ever eaten horseradish? Okay. Yeah, I mean, they say it clears out your sinuses. Um, but, but, but you see the visceral reaction there. This is how they're to remember this wonderful work of God. The point is here that God has given memorials so that people remember. You and I would probably most identify with the Lord's Supper, with communion, as one of those memorials in our day. And when the author reflects on this, as he's contemplating these memorials, he draws a conclusion. He says, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. Some of your Bibles say gracious and merciful. The Lord gives favor. We call it an unmerited favor, especially in light of of who we are and who God is. We call it grace. God gives us grace. Why? Because God is gracious. The Lord extends compassion. Psalm 103, verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Now, verse 4 might stand alone as its own way of observing what God has done. It might serve as really a banner for all that's to come. But in verse 5, we begin a new observation. In verse 5, we're to observe God's provision. We observe God's provision. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. Now remember, this psalm is an acrostic. It's one Hebrew letter of the alphabet, starting off each half line, each half verse, and it has to follow with the next letter in the alphabet. That'll be hard to do. So now he wants to write about God's provision. And he can't use... The Hebrew word for food, that letter doesn't work here. So he uses the word pray, P-R-E-Y. God has given pray to those who fear him. And some of those Hebrew scholars have their seminary laughs about whether he couldn't find another word and he had to follow the order. But the word pray is an interesting word, isn't it? God has given us pray? I mean, this is the actual word used of animal game killed by hunters. Now, without being too graphic, we need to go back to those wilderness wanderings. God gave them quail to eat. They didn't come defeathered. They didn't come bagged in their grocer's freezer. They didn't pick up a quail like you do a turkey. They caught it live as prey and went from farm to table. I made the unwise choice last week to research this topic, how we get our turkeys. My advice is just don't look it up. (laughs) 
But the point is that God has given them food. That's what the psalmist is driving at. He's given them prey. He's given them food. He's given provision. And I think the word pray, it works to a point, but I do think we would question just how God-fearing that nation in the wilderness actually was. But at the same time, God is gracious and God is compassionate and God does provide. And we can see how he does this in his scriptures. We can read his acts and his word. We can see how God does this in our lives every time we open the fridge, every time we open the closet, if we dare venture in the attic. God provides for us. In verses 6 through 8, we're called to observe God's revelation. Observe God's revelation. He's revealed himself to us in his power and in his precepts. In verse 6, he has made known to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The work of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They were upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. God made himself known in the power of his works. What works did he show? The giving of the heritage of the nations. Better said, the inheritance of the nations. And it is on this particular point that some will object to the idea of God and to Christianity in general. Israel, as you recall, came into Canaan and took over the land. Not only that, but as they did, God explicitly commanded them to, quote, utterly destroy the inhabitants. In many places, Joshua, leading the charge, obeyed this to a gruesome T. Joshua chapter 8, verse 26, Joshua did not withdraw his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. In chapter 10, verse 28, Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it, and every person who was in it, he left no survivor. In chapter 10, verse 40, Joshua struck the land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. So much for love your enemies. How do we answer this kind of a question? Is God cruel and unloving? Genocidal? Discriminative? Well, I'd say a few things about this, and you may encounter this question from time to time if you defend your faith. First, the scope of this conquest was limited. God doesn't command every war that Israel is going to choose to wage throughout the Old Testament. Joshua's generation will always need to be the focus of that conversation. And before they did attack, it's important to note as well, as Israel came into Canaan, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10, God commanded that they called for a peace first. In other words, they were to present peace as an offering to anywhere they went. Secondly, the Canaanites attacked Israel. 
It wasn't just a a one-sided offensive with Israel going into Canaan. There were times where the Canaanite kings banded together and they carried out offensives against Israel. And thirdly, the bigger picture in all this is God versus sin, not Israel versus Canaan. Generations before Joshua, long before, this is Genesis 15, God told Abram that there would be a time coming. He prophesied when they would come in to attack after, quote, the iniquity of the Amorite was complete. The Amorites lived in Canaan. In other words, God gave them time. And God knew there'd be a day when Israel would come in. In other words, God would eventually judge the sins of the people of the land. And don't forget, God would also judge the sins of Israel. If they, even the chosen people, If they sinned, God would judge them too. And those Old Testament books bear that out. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, there's blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. The bigger picture here is God against sin, not necessarily Israel against Canaan. And it's worth mentioning too that in the Old Testament, we'll discover that this judgment of God was not only on the sins of the Canaanites, but also on the nation of Israel. So God gives them the heritage of the nations. He gives them an inheritance. And he does this after waiting generations for repentance. He does this after offering peace. And he does this as a judgment of Canaanite sin. It's a remarkable act of grace on God's part. Not only did the Canaanites do nothing to, um, or not only did the Canaanites do everything to forfeit the land, but Israel really didn't do anything to deserve it either. That's just God's loving decision. But the psalmist uses this type of event to display God's power. Because in the conquest of the land, God displayed his power. And we see as well that God has revealed himself in his precepts. That word just means commandments or directions. And to the psalmist, this would be the Old Testament law. He's thinking about Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. God's word is the work of his hands. The word is truth. The word is just. We call the word his scriptures. The word is upheld forever, which is, by the way, a key theme in this psalm. In verse 3, it's his righteousness that endures forever. In verse 5, his covenant is forever. In verse 11, his praise endures forever. And now in verse 8, his precepts, they're upheld forever and ever. How helpful that is for our thankfulness that this God we worship doesn't change. He is eternal and he is unchanging. He is always the same. That helps our thankfulness. When we wake up tomorrow, it's the same God as today. We don't wake up with God in a mood. No, that doesn't happen. God is steady. God is consistent. We know what kind of God he is. We know what we're going to get because his word endures forever. And for you and I, then, we don't need to relearn God each day. Our relationship with Him can keep growing because we keep building with the God that we already know in the relationship with Christ that we already experience. Because God is who He is and because He always will be that, His Word is sure to help to our thankfulness. Well, fourthly, in verse 9, we also want to observe God's redemption. 
He has sent redemption to His people. He has ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. I want to look just at the first part of that verse. He has sent redemption to His people. That word in the Old Testament, redemption, that's actually a rare word. We don't see it a lot. It's a very common concept for us because of the New Testament. But in the Old, it's infrequent. It appears four times, and that's it. It appears one time, God asks in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 2, is my hand so short that it cannot ransom or cannot redeem? In Psalm 130, a psalmist writes, for with the Lord there's loving kindness and with him there is abundant redemption. The third appearance is in our passage today and I love the fourth appearance. This is Exodus chapter 8, verse 23. It's in the midst of the plagues. God says, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow a sign will occur. I will put a redemption between my people and your people is another way that we could say that. We don't say it that way in English, but it's the same concept. In that passage, God is going to predict the plague of the flies. And this is where swarms of flies come into Egypt. God is going to show the Egyptians that he is the one true God set against their gods, and he's the one true God of this people, Israel. These flies are all over everything except Israel. Now, have you ever met a discriminating fly? The discrimination feels as though that fly is here just for me and has forgotten about the rest of the world around me, maybe on that level. But flies don't discriminate. Everyone in Egypt and everything in Egypt received flies except Israel. Great are the works of the Lord indeed, to quote our psalmist. And that's exactly what God does, isn't it? That's the beauty of redemption, how God is able to, 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 to redeem here and to redeem over there. How God has brought you and I out of captivity. He's broken the bond of sin. How we've been enslaved to sin, we've been enslaved to the flesh, but God has redeemed us. He's drawn a distinction there. You and I, we could say we were covered in flies, we were consuming flies, we were swept up with flies, but he's changed that. We've now been brought from that to freedom and to liberty. God has sent redemption to his people. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, God judges each of us guilty based on the sin that we commit. And we are sentenced to pay an eternal penalty for that. But God also sent Jesus to pay what we owe. And all who believe are ransomed, or they are redeemed unto heaven by God, out of the pit. Can you thank God for that this morning? That's another reason we have to be thankful. It's a help to our thanksgiving. But why did God do this? Why Israel and not some other nation? Why Israel and not Egypt? What's well, the last part of that verse? He has ordained his covenant forever. In other words, God promised. Fifthly, we want to observe God's promises. 
We saw this, we hinted at it back in chapter, back in verse 5, and we see it now in verse 9. Back in verse 5, God gave food because he remembered his covenant. Now in verse 9, God sent redemption because he ordained his covenant. The word covenant is simply another word for agreement or a promise of something. The Bible records a few of these covenants where God has made a promise to his people or a promise to a person. But with an eye in verse 5 and then this redemption in verse 9, just which covenant does the psalmist write about? Well, it's probably either the one that God made with Abraham, he made a covenant with Abraham, or the covenant he made with Moses. With Abraham, God promised land, descendants, and blessing. With Moses, God gave the law, the opportunity for fellowship or relationship through this law. It's hard to know just what covenant exactly God, or excuse me, the psalmist had in mind. It's probably one of those most likely for you and I. We need to know that we are under the new covenant. This is through Jesus. Our sin is forgiven. We have a relationship with God. Again, God has sent redemption to his people. God has taken the initiative, and God has done this forever. So pondering the God who does such works, the psalmist writes, holy and awesome is his name. Here this psalmist has reflected, he's observed, as we have, God's wonders and God's provision and God's revelation and God's redemption and God's promises. And he concludes, as we ought to, that God is holy. He is unlike us. Now, many in this life will toil to leave a legacy. They will try to bind it. They'll try to buy it. They'll try to build it. But only God works wonders that are going to be remembered forever. You and I are going to seek to provide for ourselves. We're going to seek to provide for those we love. But inevitably, we're going to fail. We're going to miss something. We're going to provide for those we love imperfectly. But God does not. God provides for every need that people have. God provides. We see in the psalm that God's precepts endure forever. The ideas of men, they rise and they fall. They fade on paper. They blow away as fads. But all his precepts are sure. The scriptures are eternal. God redeems his people. I bet if you and I could choose the roster of the church, things would look a lot different. But God redeems. God redeems all kinds of different people because God is a God of redemptive love. And God keeps his covenant forever. The promises of men, they fade faster than daylight on a Bellingham winter. But God's promises never fade. He is unlike us. He is holy and awesome. That's his name. So what's our response? What's an appropriate response to this type of God? Reverence. And this too helps us with our thankfulness. Revering God helps our thankfulness. It's verse 10. Reverence or revering helps our thankfulness. The psalm closes with this word of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. 
when we reflect in verses 4 through 9, I describe something of a, of a push and a pull that's happening between us and the Lord. In other words, on one hand, we have this psalmist who can exclaim, holy and awesome is his name. But as we say that and as we contemplate who God is, we have to acknowledge that there's a gap. There's this chasm between us and God. There's some distance. He is different than we are. That ought to create in us a fear, a healthy fear, but nevertheless a reverence and an awe and a respect for God. But at the same time, we know that this God is is gracious and he's compassionate. And that wants to, to, to pull us closer to him. We want to know this God. And we want to be like this God. And in many ways, we might say we're expelled by the fire, yet at the same time, we're we're drawn to it. And that's what this psalm does as well. It presents this holy God. A God in whose image you and I are made, but by the God who displays his attributes perfectly. In short, it's a psalm of reminders. It's a psalm designed to help us with our thankfulness. I was challenged by that this past week in preparing. I was challenged by this, of all places, in a bowling alley. Uh, we took our kids bowling last week, one evening. The kids bowled, even Lucas, who is two. Now, the bowling alley is very good at accommodating two-year-olds. They set up those bumpers in the gutters. The bumpers are designed to keep your ball from going in the gutter. And if we're honest, it's good for adults, too. And they also supply us with this neat little dragon plastic-looking thing. It looks like a slide. You put your ball up there, and you push it, and it goes down the ramp and down the alley into the pins. So each time Lucas was up, he dutifully carried his own ball, bright orange, six-pound ball. He went up, and he would set it in the, on the ramp, and then he would, would give it a push and watch with great anticipation and watch, and watch. It was so slow <laughs> as that ball went for the pins, bouncing off the bumper, and finally striking, clearing a path through the pins. And his hands went up and his face lit up. He rejoiced. He was so thankful. And we all know in bowling, you get two tries. So he went back, six-pound ball, ramp, push. And as that ball neared the pins, 10 feet, 5 feet, 2 feet, that ball passed perfectly through the gap he made the first time (laughs) and struck no pins. And as he turned around for that long walk back, His face lit up, and he cheered. He was so excited. And I thought, what a good lesson in thankfulness. What a good lesson. Kids are so much better at that than we are as adults. But it was such a good reminder for me. Because some days are what? Some days are no-pin days. And some days are like two-pin days. But maybe if we're more Psalm 111, every day is like a 10-pin day. And we do have a lot to be thankful for. And I was so convicted by that and so thankful for conviction that comes from two-year-olds that I wanted to share that with you today because I do think we have a lot to be thankful for. 
No matter what the day is, no matter what the trial is, we don't know when the trial is going to end. We don't know what trial tomorrow brings. We have a lot to be thankful for today just because of who God is and just because God, what God has done. And to quote the psalmist, he has sent his redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Let's pray together. Father, you do give us many many reasons to be thankful. And we confess this morning, Lord, that um, we forget what they are and um, sometimes we don't see what they are, but, but we pray for that mercy and that grace in our lives to, to have eyes that recognize your many good gifts. You've been exceptionally kind to us, Lord, not only materially and perhaps financially, but Lord, you've given us Jesus Christ and you've given us salvation. And we can't thank you enough. I pray that you would give us eyes to see the many reasons we have to be grateful. I pray that in this special season of Thanksgiving and Christmas, we would see more pronounced and see more vividly. But I pray too that you would train our hearts to see you around the beauty of your majesty and the glory of your holiness. Holy and awesome are you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.